0: I'll try not to do anything, ever.
1: Must be a long ways from there to here.
0: Click, click, click.
1: It's uh, deep.
0: Everything deep, man.
1: The keys of the kingdom, or I'm gonna let you explain that part. Let's
0: see what the New Living Translation says.
1: Yeah, I looked at it in the Greek. Uh... Welcome to another episode of Practically Theologians and today we are recording another episode in the series uh, called Misused and Abused where we look at passages of scripture that uh, are maybe taken out of context or misunderstood and then as a result misapplied. Um, And our goal for the podcast is to look at these passages Come to a better understanding of what they mean, what they accurately mean, how they accurately apply so that we can work towards making theology practical, which is the aim, the overall aim of our podcast. I'm Andrew and I'm in central Illinois and recording with me today is Josh out in where, Josh? Western Washington. Western Washington.
0: Beautiful Western Washington. Yeah, I don't but don't move
1: here. I never know if you're in Washington or California or, or where you guys are at. So, Washington today, huh?
0: Washington today. Yeah. Tomorrow, who knows?
1: Cool. And uh, we, we met, just a quick background here, we met at Seminary, at San de Cristo Seminary in Colorado, um, and that is when we hatched the plan to put together a podcast like this, and so we've been kind of working towards uh, maybe recording on a little bit more consistent basis, but it's been a good time. I know it's been edifying for myself, and Josh, I think you've enjoyed it as well, as you've shared. So, looking yep. forward to keeping it going. Uh, Josh, what's our what's our passage for today? Our passage
0: for today is Matthew eighteen twenty, which says, where... For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I amongst them.
1: And what, uh, what translation are you using, Josh?
0: That would be the the uh, what's what's well, the ESV. I was trying to think of the the what is it, the uh, oh well. Oh, is there an acronym like a joke? <laughs> but I can't remember. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I got you.
0: Oh, oh well.
1: So the reason I brought that up about the translation you were using is just because I think it's it's always good to remind ourselves that, that not no no one translation is perfect. Uh, so it is good as part of the as part of our Bible study to just include. A few, you know, maybe two or three different translations, the ESV or the NASB or um, the Young's Literal Translation. No, I'm just kidding. That would be a little bit difficult to read, but just finding some some decent translations that that are proven to be accurate and allowing them to kind of give you a fuller, a fuller understanding of the text. Typically, you'll see that they're pretty close together. Uh, They they reflect each other pretty well, but every now and then you'll see something worded a little bit differently that will just give a a little bit fuller understanding of the text. But, uh, Josh, you were looking at some different translations on this particular verse before we started recording, and it seems like on this verse, they're all pretty much in line, correct? Yeah,
0: especially for our purposes, the particular issue that we're looking at. Yeah, even the message. Agreed with us.
1: Even the message agreed with us, which means we are on solid ground with this. All right. So, Josh, um, before we so we're looking at just one verse here. Um, So before we get started into trying to come to a proper understanding of this verse, uh, just allowing this verse to stand on its own. What are some ways that you've seen this verse uh, misused or abused?
0: I'm sure you have, too. I imagine. And I don't know if you personally have done this. I have um, used this verse to refer to the gathering of the church and, and how uh, when believers gather, no matter where they're at, Jesus is in their midst. So some people actually use this as one of their proof texts for why house churches are okay. And by the way, I'm fine with churches meeting in houses, but there's a particular movement that is, they, I don't know, you refer to them as house churches. I, I should have studied that before I started talking. But anyway, <laughs> they use verses like this to say, you see, the church is wherever believers gather. Um, it's not a an institution. Uh, they don't generally... Agree with I'm I come from a Presbyterian church and Presbyterianism is elders at a local church. There's a presbytery in the region that meets, which is made up of elders or uh, pastors, and then there is a basically a national presbytery level, and it's like a court system. It's not necessarily like a hierarchy, though, but that is kind of what the people that don't like Presbyterian, it's kind of how they look at it. Um, but my, by the way, Presbyterianism really, it's about the local church. <clears throat> so I think if, if you think Presbyterianism is a bureaucratic hierarchy, you should probably look into what Presbyterianism really is, at least the biblical Presbyterianism that for example, I'm part of the OPC consists of. So, so this, this verse could be used by people opposed to something like Presbyterianism uh, to, to say, we don't need the court systems. We don't need the association or the connection to other churches Believers' meeting is where the church is. The church, the church could be at Bob's house, and we meet and worship God, and Jesus is in our midst, at Bob's house. Then we go over to Sam's house. Maybe I should throw in a lady, Susie's house, and we meet with some different believers, and we gather, and there, lo and behold, two. And by the way, people often misquote this verse. Both. Have you heard of a vose?
1: before? Yeah, it's a, it's a plural for verse.
0: Yeah, vos. It's a seminary term. Multiple No, unless you went to seminary. <laughs> anyway, they read this vos this way <laughs> Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Andrew, what does it say in the text?
1: Well, according to the ESV, it says two or three. Specifically, and and that's a direct – that is a literal translation from the Greek text. Two or three is um, what it says here.
0: Two or three, not two or more. No. I wonder if – well, let's, let's just think about what the message has to say about that because as we know, whenever we disagree with the ESV's translation, the first place we should go to <laughs> is the message. By the way, that's our, our joke, son. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so and the you, message you are, too.
1: If you are it reading the two message, or three, then uh, <laughs> maybe supplement that with the ESV every now and then, just to just to uh, get a more wo- a more. Wo- the message
0: can be a helpful and fun way to
1: entertain yourself. To
0: to jar your brain cells into <laughs> thinking about what the text says, but it's probably go good to go back to a more literal. Translation. When you want to get closer to God's inspired word, <laughs> I don't want to offend too many people.
1: <laughs> well, I no, mean, I mean, part of it's just calling it what it is, right? I mean, the message is is uh, a running commentary, basically. But regardless, yes. Yeah. Um, and I think so. I'm not Presbyterian. Just to just so we're clear that Josh and I are coming from different different angles here uh, as far as the uh, the organization of of the church leadership. However, I've heard the same thing um, in talking to people that maybe don't attend church on a regular basis of any sort. Um, not necessarily because they disagree with any sort of church structure uh, as far as leadership, but just because they don't um, they don't want to be at a church in general, and they don't think they need to be. Uh, they think that it's, purpose, it's perfectly fine to uh, be a Christian that is not formally plugged into a local church body. And I think that they would go to a verse, they, they have gone to this verse uh, to say, you know, uh, as long as I've got a group of, of people that are Christians, a group of um, people that are meeting together or that I hang out with, whatever it is, um, then that's my church. You know, uh, my church is my softball team or my church is the guys I golf with. You know, we're, we're all professing Christians and we get together on a regular basis in some way. And where two or three slash two or more are gathered, uh, that's enough church for me. Uh, and I think that the danger here, here's the danger, Josh, I think that we have to look at, uh, that mentality, uh, can bleed over into a Christian's um, worldview uh, even when we are attending church on a regular basis. So the the obviously we can look at the extreme and say, well, that person, is, they've misinterpreted this verse and therefore their understanding of the church is flawed. At the same time, um, we as Christians don't always have the best understanding of how church functions either, uh, which we'll get into a little bit when we start figuring out the, the primary Purpose of this text and what it means, so we're not really always able to refute that well. So I think that this is a call for for all Christians uh, as we think through this text to say, I may I may realize that this text doesn't mean that, but do I know what it actually does mean? Uh, because if we don't, then we're then we're, we're not uh, we're not handling God's word properly either. Uh, even if we're, we haven't taken it to that extreme, uh, there's still a lot of learning that we can do and, and a lot of growing we can do in the context of how does the local church operate. Um, but so before we get there, though, let's. I want to. I want to go one verse above this, and and we can see another way that this can be abused. Uh, if we go one verse above this, in verse, oh uh, yes, nineteen. What does verse nineteen tell us, Josh? In your own words, uh, Well, you can read it, but. In your own, in Josh's message, how do you take verse 19 at face value?
0: Well, Andrew, if you or I, if we both get together and we agree that that I need to be a millionaire, and we ask the Lord for that, it will be done for us. Amen. Yep. All yep. right, let's get together. I'm here. <laughs> We have to agree, (laughs) which the verse says, by the way, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. Then it goes on for where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. Yeah, ask for
1: it. And then, and then going into, um, yeah, so, so as it goes into verse 20, that four becomes important, right? Because then th- that means that the reason that we could ask for a million dollars uh, when we're gathered together, the reason we can do that and the reason we can ask for anything uh, is because Jesus is among us when we ask, right? So that adds weight. God is obviously willing and able to give us whatever we want as long as two or three of us are gathered together to ask for it, correct? So we're good to go.
0: And we agree.
1: And we agree. Yeah, I
0: agree. Reminds me of uh, when I looked up Joyce Meyer's stuff. She, she has language of agreeing with God. When you agree with God in your prayer, then he'll give you what you ask for. And I don't know who this was, but it seems like there's some false teachers out there that talk about God being obligated legally somehow to give you whatever you're asking for has something to do with agreement. And I imagine they use this verse, but now I can't remember. Wow. here I go again. Andrew, you should
1: know. I can't remember.
0: You're a Baptist after (laughs) all. (laughs)
1: oh man why does that why does that feel like a uh, like a rebuke or something
0: so i i appreciate you my baptist friend (laughs) i appreciate that fact
1: (laughs) (laughs) um so if we so let's look at Josh. let's just take a second and look at what does this verse actually mean so obviously it doesn't mean that uh, we could just go it, it's not in any way saying one that as long as we get together, we can ask whatever we want and uh, and it will be given to us because we agree. Uh, we are putting we are we are establishing that this is not what that verse means, right? And secondly, it doesn't mean that we can gather together in a in a home or anywhere, even in a church building and assume that just because two or three have gathered that this is church, uh, which those are the two ways that we see this most commonly misused and abused, misunderstood, misapplied. So in light of that, the fact that so we're making those two statements, Uh, let's look now at the right understanding of this passage. Let's take a few minutes and just look at the right understanding of this passage or or this verse within the context of its passage. So, Josh, I think one of the first things that we can look at is uh, one of the hermeneutical principles that we can apply here is the idea of progressive revelation. So where, where can we look that would maybe emphasize the progressive revelation hermeneutic? Uh,
0: God spoke in many ways and in many times in the past to our fathers. I don't know.
1: <laughs> oh i see yeah i want to make clear my in mind.
0: one of the peters he talks about yes. i'm talking no, the I, prophets I, I, writing for us about things that they didn't understand about how it's going to happen i was you're talking about progressive
1: I, revelation I didn't, I didn't mean to. i wasn't get...
0: prepared for your question <laughs> maybe you're talking about the analogy of faith
1: i did not mean hard. Nope. I, I meant to <laughs> i meant to direct you and I did I did very poorly at this. I meant to direct it <laughs> to Deuteronomy nineteen. So Josh, Joshua <laughs> you
0: mean the analogy of faith, the scripture interprets scripture.
1: Yes. And, well, it's both the scripture interprets scripture, but the progressive revelation side of it is that we have a fuller understanding with fuller revelation of how this applies yeah. to the New Testament church is what I was getting at. So anyway, scratch my my very poor <laughs> leading of that uh, of uh, that question. Josh, why don't you just tell us what Deuteronomy 19 says and how it sheds lights on this verse.
0: I'll I'll do that in a minute. But first of all, I would like to say that as poor as Andrew might be doing, the reason why he hosts is because I would surely do worse.
1: Oh, I I appreciate that. uh, (laughs)
0: That's a nice backhanded compliment for
1: you. (laughs) I felt more like just a backhand, but that's all right. (laughs) So
0: Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not suffice uh, against – oh, it is the ESV. I thought I was reading the King James and I was going to hold up there, but let's keep going. Hopefully, you guys can understand English. A single witness – because it's the English Standard Version. Get it? A single witness shall not suffice against any – a person, sorry. A person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who are in office those days, in those days, etc., etc., etc. Uh, Andrew, what is one plus
1: one? Oh man, I, this is not part of our prep. Um,
0: iPhones have a calculator. You have an iPhone.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with two.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what's one plus two?
1: I'm gonna go with three.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So the person plus one additional person equals two or plus two additional people equals three, but it says here, two or three is how a charge shall be established. Hmm. I wonder if Jesus knows his Old Testament. What do you think, Andrew? Um, Have you guys taken the uh, doctrine of Christ? Yes. So you should know this answer. (laughs)
1: Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's probably mixed in with everything else, but are you are you asking, does Jesus know the old testament
0: it's It's not a trick question' do yeah, It's like I one place
1: I think I don't think that I learned that in uh, the doctrine of Christ, but yes
0: <laughs> absolutely.
1: I think that might have been a fact.
0: in fact, do you suppose he might be quoting the Old Testament to some degree and then interpreting it here?
1: It it does seem that way. It seems like he is uh, giving us it. Which okay, so this this ties into what I was talking about with progressive revelation. But it does. It seems like he is giving. He is explaining to us um, in a in a fuller sense what was uh, being shadowed in Deuteronomy nineteen.
0: And I mean, verse sixteen, he quotes it directly. If if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses.
1: So what? uh, So what? What's this in the context of when you're talking about a charge here?
0: Sin. If a brother sins against you, then you have a charge to lay at his feet. Brother, you sinned against me. You go to your brother. You say you sinned against me. He says, "Nah, I don't. I didn't." So then you take a witness and you go to your brother, and you say, "You sinned against me," etc. Did I answer
1: your question? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so just to summarize, we are in the context here. This verse in context is speaking about uh, approaching someone who has sinned against another person. And that sin has been brought to the one who has, who has uh, performed it. The sin has been brought to their attention. They have refused to acknowledge or repent of that sin. And so the, the situation is taken uh, to another witness to fill out this, this requirement of, two or three being aware of the situation. Uh, And the whole point here, Josh, if I'm not mistaken, the whole point here is to establish a credible testimony.
0: Yeah. You're not mistaken. Well, no, 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 no. Okay. That's a sub point. The whole point here is to reconcile your brother. Oh yeah. To
1: yourself. Right. I mean, yeah, you're right. I meant the the point of gathering the two or three, uh, the point of moving, along in the process is to establish credibility. But you're right. And the overarching, the overarching point uh, of the entire process, the the end goal is a desire to restore a brother. Yep. Yes, sir. Yep. Which is important uh, because that means that let's keep that in mind. The entire, the entire goal is to establish or is to, um, to restore a brother. And as we move along the process, part of, that is gaining credibility, a credible testimony. So, so that, so that the person that has caused the offense can't say, well, I didn't do it. And it becomes, uh, you know, a, a he says, she says kind of thing where, uh, there's, there's not really, you know, who, who knows who's right. Now we're establishing a credible witness, a credible testimony, uh, and, then there's, it goes further and says that now if this still doesn't work, then take it to the church and then exercise church discipline on the, the brother that has caused the offense that refuses to repent. All of that, that process or that information that uh, takes place is before we get to this idea then of uh, what happens when two or three agree. So all of that is already has already been established. Jesus has already just walked through that just previous to our verse that we were looking at. And he's already used this phrase that he pulled from Deuteronomy about two or three. And and then so then we see that two or three um come up again in our in our verse in twenty, where two or three are gathered. Uh, so it, it, it all flows under that umbrella of attempting or desiring to restore a brother, which means that that has to then shape how we understand prayer uh, when it's mentioned um, or, you know, if two or if two agree and ask uh, if they agree on anything and ask, it will be done for them. It, that has to shape how we even understand what that asking is. Uh, the, the idea of restoring a brother has to shape our understanding of why two or three would even be gathered to begin with. It has to shape what they would be agreeing on. Right. So, so part of, as we look at, as we look at the context, uh, it really starts to restrict where and how this passage applies. It's not an open, open ended, um, you know, fit this passage wherever you might see two or three people, right. It's, It's a very specific context. And a very spe- a very specific gathering for a very specific purpose, and everything has to fall within that. So, um, yeah. Now we start to come to a better understanding of what our verse nineteen here actually means, or twenty that we were looking at. Nineteen and
0: twenty.
1: Nineteen and twenty,
0: especially twenty. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, I I uh, I don't know if we're ready to move on to this, but. I found a couple of examples. One, John Murray, who is from the OPC—that's uh, one of my guys there. Just kidding. I mean, I, I hate to create two corners battling, but the other guy is Spurgeon, and he happened to be a Baptist. So
1: I like—I
0: I guess I, you're a guy.
1: I find it interesting that that uh, when somebody's a Baptist, they they happen to be one, as though it's a. Uh, an ailment or something that they've got to deal with, but anyways, go ahead.
0: Well, I said it that way because you're a Baptist.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I would just argue. Nah, never mind. We, we won't go down that. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> We're, we don't have enough time to open up that can of worms, so we'll uh, we'll save that for a oh, Yeah,
0: there's not enough time ever.
1: Nope.
0: <laughs> that might be a fun podcast. How to come to an agreement while disagreeing
1: hmm agreeing the agree.
0: Lord while disagreeing like Paul tells what is it Eutychus and Syntyche in uh, Philippians chapter mm-hmm. four mm-hmm. or three yeah. Yeah. Yep. anyway all right so John Murray interestingly uses this verse refers to this verse when speaking about, in an article um, on the opc.org website, one of the New Horizons uh, magazines, he refers to this verse in in his argument that one should not um, uh, prefer a larger church over a smaller church. In other words, numbers don't really matter when it comes to the worship of God. If two met to worship in Jesus' name, uh, or if 500, I mean, this is not what he says, this is what I'm saying he's arguing, then it doesn't matter. The size of the worship, uh, the assembly worshiping does not matter. The point is that God is there, and they are worshiping him. So is that untrue? No. No. Is Matthew eighteen twenty the verse to go to, to demonstrate that? No. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. I bring these up merely to point out that it might be worth thinking about using these as proof texts instead of throwing them out there willy-nilly. Um, Spurgeon uh, kind of does the same thing. He talks about in terms of every meeting of any sort or kind, which is for Christ's glory, is a sacred meeting. Um, then he quotes Matthew eighteen twenty in the middle of that section. This sanctions the church meeting. This is a quote. This prospers the prayer meeting, overshattering, overshatter.
1: <laughs> Man,
0: I got me an accent. Sound like a uh,
1: dangerous church meeting. I, I, sound,
0: I sound like Mater from uh, the. <laughs> that's the movie Cars. yeah overshattering every gracious assembly of the chosen we see the great shepherd of the sheep who here expressly says where two are three or three are, are gathered in my need together there i am in the midst of them beautifully written and entirely true however Is that what this verse is referring to, a church meeting or a prayer meeting? Not exactly. Not exactly. It's a specific meeting having to do with church discipline specifically. So I found it interesting. I I intentionally chose two writers from Reformed backgrounds, one not baptist one baptist to just show that we all tend to use proof texts mm-hmm. in making an argument that is true but the text may not be referring making the same argument and i think ultimately if you are trying to defend your position using proof texts that don't make the case uh, they only support your position if you take them and fluff them up a little. <laughs> I, I think that's a dangerous way to defend your position um, because your opponent could easily say, Hey man, look what you're doing to the Bible. I don't believe anything you say. And it's not dangerous in terms of you losing an argument. I mean, we can all lose argument. We should be humble enough to realize that we're wrong if we are wrong. But if we are right, we are doing harm to our brother in the sense that we are, we're not loving enough to let the Bible speak for itself. Is that a good way to put it? Mm-hmm. And so if we are interpreting the Bible wrong... That's fine. We should be told that we're wrong. But if we are saying something true and misusing a Bible text to prove that, it would be a shame for our brother to say you're wrong because the Bible text doesn't say that and have your brother leave without understanding God's word better on the one hand. On the other hand, it's good for you because you realize with shame wow, I really didn't read something into that text. Shame on me. And that's how God sanctifies us. So, Don't do it on purpose, but when you do do it, God will use it for your benefit and his glory. Hopefully.
1: Yeah, I think there has to be, I mean, I think that the examples that you've used here are, are important because I think there has to be a uh, a humility that comes with uh with studying God's word that recognizes that uh, I I want to know as much as I can about God and what he has revealed about himself through his word and how he has designed for things to operate, whether it's uh, marriage or the church or uh, the, just the different relationships, work relationships, uh, relationships with other believers, relationships with, relationships with the world. Uh, how God has designed these things matters because it ha- all has to do with uh, manifesting the glory of God and worshiping God. Um, but with that, that desire to, to want to know God like that, there has to be a humility here that, that, um, I, I need to come to the text realizing that I may have misunderstood this in the past. And I think that that's, you know, looking at Murray and Spurgeon here and realizing that, uh, it seems like they may have gotten the main point, the main thrust of this text, a little bit off. And the, and they're they're obviously very well respected uh, preachers and and um, st- students of God's word, and we and we we stand on their shoulders in a lot of ways uh, on the work that they have done. But it doesn't mean that they're that they're flawless, right? In their understanding of God's word, uh, and I think that it's interesting. Uh, one of the, I think, one of the key indicators that they may not have this fully understood in their commentaries uh, on this verse or on this this little passage here is because if we go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus begins. Th- this passage begins with Jesus talking to the disciples as they're asking, "Who's the greatest among us?" And Jesus immediately uh, starts talking about children and how you need to have basically you need to have the faith of a child and and the one that has faith like a child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and he goes on then to talk about the the tragedy of sin uh, within the community of believers and how causing a believer to stumble is uh, extremely devastating uh, God rejo- God, seeks out and heavens the heavens rejoice when uh, a lost sinner is found. The, the, it's just the idea of the, the, the tragedy and the reality of sin in this in this chapter is being addressed over and over from different angles. And so then you get to this passage and that has to be weighing on the mind of someone who's studying this passage is just how heavily Jesus has been addressing sin. Uh, from different angles. And then he comes to this passage and he's talking about now as as the leadership of the church or as believers, the, the reality is the tragedy of sin is actually going to sting you. That's not, uh, that's, that's expected. The, the tragedy of sin will sting you as a believer. Your brother is going to sin against you. That's not Uh, a probability. That's a, that is a reality. Um, It's, it's going to happen. And when it does, here's how you handle that. I think that, and then he goes on, obviously we we could look at the rest of the passage then, or the rest of the chapter, he goes on and talks about how often uh, do we forgive? You know, Peter asks, well, how often are we supposed to forgive? And like we talked about the entire point is to restore the brother that has sinned. And it's actually on the one that has been sinned against to take the initiative to get this figured out. Uh so the the whole the whole um, thrust of this this section of Matthew, if we even just like zoom out a little bit and take this as a section, um, the whole thrust of this that Jesus is, is getting across is the reality and the tragedy of sin, the what the the weight of sin and then the reality that sin is going to be present amongst believers. And how do you handle that? And I feel like when you when you go with like the the way that Murray has handled it or the way that Spurgeon has handled it, uh, you kind of you lose the weight of sin um, and how it needs to be handled well. That and and when it is handled well, it allows the church to shine uh, in a way that the world will have a hard time understanding. When I think I think that sin in the church uh, is a is a prime opportunity for the church to shine in the midst of the world w- when it handles sin in the right way, uh, when it realizes the tragedy of sin and then when it realizes the right way to handle sin when it occurs uh, amongst believers. So I, I, I just um, yeah, I just want to take a little bit of time and, and just lay that out there about what I think is missing from Murray and Spurgeon um, when they approach it from, from the way that they did on their, on, in their commentary.
0: Well, to be fair, it, they weren't commentating on this verse. They were writing an article about a topic, or perhaps preaching a sermon. In Spurgeon's case, and it came up okay. in the middle of their okay. writing. So they weren't they weren't looking at this section in context.
1: So they, they really words, used it as a, it literally was a proof text to, to make a right. Yeah, I got you
0: right. Yep. Yeah. And uh, by the way, regarding. Sin the analogy of the straying sheep and the Father in heaven, leaving the 99 out of 100 to go after the one straying sheep is immediately before this mm-hmm. section. Uh, kind of tells you the heart of our Heavenly Father toward even those sheep who have strayed away from the fold, that he goes and seeks that sheep to bring that sheep back to himself. Yep. Back into the fold, and that's how we should treat our brothers who sin against us. Uh, no, certainly no worse than our heavenly Father has treated us, who have sinned against Him. Another cool thing in this passage, by the way, just just a comment: Jesus is equating Himself to God here, and it's it's just cool to think about. When you read the Old Testament and you see in Deuteronomy 19, you bring it before the Lord, before Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh. Uh, Jesus, is, it seems here, is equating himself with Yahweh. And I think that that is pretty cool. So when you're reading the Old Testament and you come across Yahweh, the name uh, of God, and... And you read that, you, you can think um, that Jesus, that God with us, Emmanuel, that he, in order to show us loving kindness, in order to show us mercy, in order to dwell in our midst, he becomes incarnate. That God the Son becomes incarnate to save sinners and that he is the shepherd of the sheep who seeks those who are lost, who calls back those who have strayed um, just as Yahweh called Israel back to himself over and over and over and over and over and over over again. Um, It's cool to see the unity of the Bible and to realize uh, that that everything in scripture is profitable for even us who come thousands of years after those Israelites. And that's it.
1: Oh, sermon over. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's, it's good to see that. Like you said, that common thread that runs through. Uh, it's important. That's that's very important when we want to when we, when we're coming to understand uh, any passage of scripture to to work against the tendency to detach uh, the passage that we're studying from not only the immediate context but also the the uh, what you would call the redemptive historical t- context or the overarching yeah. context of scripture as a whole. Uh, and how God, fit. God,
0: God's great promised always with that He would be in our midst and we would be his yeah. people and we would dwell with him forever. And it's always been the case that he, he seeks those who stray always. So yeah. it's comforting.
1: Yep. Yeah, you're right. And and that is the proper perspective then on this, just to summarize here as we, as we uh, bring this episode to a close, the, the, the encouraging thing here for every believer to hear is exactly what you just said, that God has always promised to be in the midst of his people to always go after the lost, uh, the, the strange sheep. Uh, and also, uh, so as that applies to the new Testament church, uh, the, the necessity to be plugged into the local body, uh, that God, that, that God has designed to be used to bring his sheep together so that they could be healthy Uh, it is the, the local church is the way that God brings, um, the straying sheep back into the fold, back under the umbrella of obedience, uh, without the local church, uh, we, we don't have the opportunity to, to go through this process. Uh, so, and to have church discipline or, you know, restoration, we would even look at more so to have proper restoration take place, uh, and proper, um, one proper accountability, but then also on the other hand, for the for the the sheep that is straying, for them to experience the love of God as He comes out and brings them back in, uh, the local church is just the 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 area or the context within which that happens. Um, so, anyways, Josh, you got uh, you got thirty seconds to go ahead and um, summarize it and take us home.
0: All right, and that's why you should have church membership and elders.
1: Boom. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. All right, Solid so point.
0: So uh, I think bringing it home might have to do with send us an email, podcast at practicallytheologians.org. Uh, rate and review us on the place uh, at which you listen to us, which let's just say iTunes, that'd be great. And give us a five, if you don't mind. Um, uh, yeah, Facebook, Twitter... Is that
1: it? I think so. That's it. I think so.
0: Linker.fm
1: Perfect. And thanks for
0: listening. Next time. Thanks, Josh. Talk about a sloppy end.
1: (laughs) We need to work on that ending a little bit. Catch you later. Work on the ending. (laughs)